This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. A Colorado man was killed last month fighting against ISIS in Syria, but he wasn't a member of the U.S. military. Levi Shirley always wanted to join the Marine Corps, but according to his family, his poor eyesight prevented that. So he went abroad himself, joining Kurdish fighters. And he's not alone. More than 100 Americans have gone to Syria and Iraq to fight ISIS outside the purview of the U.S. military since the conflict started. Dan Lamoth covers national security for The Washington Post and joins me. Welcome. Uh, Thanks for having me. Last year, Levi Shirley left the U.S. to fight with the Kurds in Syria, in particular with the YPG, or the People's Protection Units. He recorded a video which the YPG put on YouTube about why he went to Syria. In it, he calls himself Jack, which might be a nickname for his middle name, Jonathan. Uh, Good afternoon. My name is Augur in Kurdish. It means fire. And uh, my real name is Jack. I came here to Rojava to stop Daesh, or ISIS as it's known more commonly in America. Uh, They're my definition of pure evil. Uh, I don't think good people uh, in a society can stick other people inside of a cage and set them on fire. So, uh, yeah, I came here to stop that. Dan, what else do you know about Shirley's motivation to go to Syria? Um, <clears throat> speaking with his mother, um, I think in particular, he was very, very compelled to military service and very much wanted to be a Marine in particular. Um, once he was not allowed to join uh, because he didn't meet their screening standards, uh, it seemed like he sort of to follow in his father's footsteps. His father was a Vietnam veteran. Uh, he just looked for whatever way he could do to get to get to the fight. And and was it because he wanted to join the military? You're saying, or was it more for 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 this this hatred of ISIS? It seems there's there's two things going uh, on there. I think I think they are, and I don't think they're necessarily in a conflict. I think in his mind, they probably mar- very much uh, married up well. Um, his his mother described him as as someone who was. Uh, you know, very much sticking up for the underdog and kind of saw it as a, as a, as a justice sort of issue in his own mind. Um, and then in, in addition to that, um, I think in the absence of, uh, you know, a lot of U.S. forces on the ground, he saw it as something he could do. What was his role with the uh, YPG? Uh, it's a bit fuzzy, and it's actually a bit in conflict to some of what we've heard about uh, other Americans who've been there, because it sounds like he was so much closer to the front lines. Uh, speaking to an, an, another um, uh, foreign fighter who uh, it sounded like they, he had befriended uh, in Syria, um, the, the, uh, his colleague had said that very much he, uh, he was someone who wasn't on the front lines. He had apparently fought in Kobani, uh, which was a very significant battle last year, uh, and his death more recently came in the, in the battle for Mambij, uh, which is very much a, a focus of the, uh, of the coalition fight right now to, to, to kind of take back various parts of Syria um, Man bitch is known as a as a hub for uh, foreign fighters that are joining ISIS. And the New York Times and others have reported more than 100 American civilians have gone to fight with foreign forces in Syria. But it's really hard to keep track or know how many there actually are in country, isn't there? Uh, yes, very, very much so. And, and part of that is because you only get really snippets of who's there and for how long. Um, there's been plenty of reporting on individuals who went and then weren't, weren't really happy with the role that they were given by the YPG. Uh, so they either requested to be, to leave or find their way back to Iraq or find their way back to to Turkey, whatever, whatever they could do to get in. Now it's, it's much more fluid situation than sort of your conventional American deployment. 
And proportionally, there are more Coloradans volunteering to fight in Syria than from other states, though the numbers are very small, under 10 people from Colorado. And that's according to an investigative reporting website called Bellincat, which has a strong reputation for its reporting on Syria. In particular, its conclusion that the Syrian president used chemical weapons on civilians there in 2013. So Bellingcat looked at where these Americans going to fight ISIS were coming from and found Colorado was overrepresented. How do Americans initially link up with the Kurds? It seems like the most conventional way uh, is through uh, various Facebook groups. Uh, one of the more popular ones is called Lions of Rojava. Uh, Rojava being kind of that area in, in Syria uh, where YPG fighters um, are, are very active uh, against ISIS. Um, and it, it, you typically would exchange some mes- messages with them uh, and then work your way toward Turkey or work your way toward uh, Erbil in, nor- in northern Iraq and, and try and find your way to some part of the fight. And it seems that's the way ISIS also recruits uh, members for, for that fight. Are, are there more Americans or less who have gone to fight with ISIS? I would submit it's it's probably relatively comparable. Um, you, you hear about you know more than a hundred a lot on both sides, um, but but it, it, again it's very hard to speculate with any kind of you know full grounding in reality. I think I see, and I understand most U.S. citizens traveling to fight against ISIS outside the U.S. military presence are, are military veterans. Is this happening in part because the U.S. has not put its own troops on the ground to fight ISIS? Uh, do you think some of these guys are motivated by that? I think some certainly are. Um, I think you also see uh, individuals who uh, uh, sort of feel like they may have missed their calling, uh, you know, considered serving when they were younger and then didn't or couldn't get into the military for whatever reason. Um, you, you, you find a lot of a very eclectic eclectic personalities that appear to pop up um, sort of in this world. Uh, I know there's another individual named uh, David Cole uh, who pops up in a number of places. Uh, whether, that, whether or not that's even his real name, I, I think is unclear. Uh, but he's sort of this larger-than-life, seven-foot-tall American uh, that's supposedly f- f- fighting uh, against ISIS as well. And shouldn't it be difficult for U.S. citizens to get to Syria right now, just logistically speaking? Uh, logistically speaking, I, I think it, 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 it's certainly possible to do so, um, but, but, but in terms of safety issues and all those sorts of things, um, uh, yes, that complicates it. Uh, I, I think for, in, for people who kind of make peace with this idea of what they're doing, um, uh, when the, the, the threats that go with traveling, uh, in particular, you know, that part of Syria, working way over the Turkish border, uh, when you're... When you're, you're that compelled to do it, I, I think logistically it becomes a lot more easier when you're willing to take those additional risks. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Dan Lamoth about Americans join forces against ISIS outside the purview of the U.S. military. He covers national security for The Washington Post. Uh, Dan, there's only one other confirmed death of a civilian in that situation, uh, I believe, and that was Keith Broomfield from Massachusetts, who was killed in 2015. Uh, This is what the State Department had to say about his death through spokesman Jeff Rathke at a press briefing last year. Uh, I can confirm that U.S. citizen Keith Broomfield um, was killed in in Syria. We're providing all possible consular assistance, um, the normal uh, consular assistance that we would provide in the, in the uh, instance of the death of an American citizen uh, abroad. Which so, would be? 
uh, our first responsibility, of course, is for uh, you know identification, and then uh, you know depending on the circumstances, uh, then there can be additional steps uh, after death, including issuing a report of death abroad, and and so forth. I'll say the State Department has an advisory aimed at people like Keith Broomfield and Levi Shirley. Uh, quote, private U.S. citizens are strongly discouraged from traveling to Syria to take part in the conflict. The U.S. government does not support this activity and our ability to provide consular assistance to individuals who are injured or kidnapped or to the families of individuals who die as a result of taking part in the conflict is extremely limited. Dan, that's strong language. How does the U.S. government view these fighters? Um, if, if you're joining, I, I think there's a, a, a difference um, between strongly discouraged and illegal, mm. um, which is, I think, a key distinction between joining ISIS, where you're considered to be joining a terrorist group, and joining some of these units that are fighting against ISIS. Uh, the problem is in terms of uh, the logistics, uh, not only of how do you get there, but also, and this is actually, a, 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 I think, an interesting conundrum at this point, um, Levi Shirley has been dead two weeks now, plus. Uh, and a- as of yesterday, when I checked in with his mom, uh, he's, he's still, uh, you know, still abroad. Uh, there's no real firm sense of how they might be able to bring him home. Um, and, and you could, you could imagine the, the complications on that, that sort of thing, uh, sort of, you know, without the typical uh, American logistics backbone you would have, you know, helicopters, convoys, all those sorts of, sorts of things that are regular in a place like uh, you know, Iraq in the heyday of the war there or, or Afghanistan even now, um, sort of in the absence of that, it gets very difficult to, you know, take care of those families and take care of uh, situations that can arise if you were to get hurt or anything like that or just want out. In your reporting, have you found that there is an effort to make uh, this illegal? I, I, ha- I, I don't believe that's a, a distinction that they've um, been, been willing to go toward. Um, it's it's sort of just one of those things that, you know, it's, I think in, in most people's mind, it's such a exceptionally unusual thing to do. Uh, and it's going to come up, you know, in these, you know, couple dozen handful sort of situations every year um, where you'll hear about an individual or hear that they're not happy with their situation. But I don't think they're going there. How much of an impact are these American fighters having as part of the Kurdish effort to fight back ISIS? Um, Prior to this case, uh, there had been very little reporting um, that sort of highlighted them having a significant combat role. Uh, There's one individual named Jordan Mattson who's been covered on a number of occasions, and it sounds like he has certainly been in the fight as as opposed to just near the fight. Uh, But there's been a lot of other complaints, actually, from Americans who have served that have have popped up in various news reports uh, that would suggest that um, once they get there, um, they don't necessarily have the role they thought they would. Um, uh, They're kept kept a little bit more in 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 a rear sort of role. Um, and, and, and in some cases took exception to that. They, they felt like they were there more for propaganda value um, on the part of the YPG or you know, that they, they were almost too strategic to put in the fight as, as, a, you know, as someone that they wouldn't want to lose. And I think that's um, a fair question. possibly and, for the recruiting. I mean, that, that's, a fair, that's a question where are, are these fighters going to, to fight with the Kurds? Are they simply being seen as propaganda pieces to, to attract more foreigners to join the fight? I think that, and also potentially just uh, you know, it kind of highlights highlights their cause to a much 
much, much broader audience. Um, anytime you've got a situation like this comes up, uh, whether it's an individual who, who dies in combat or just an individual who, um, you know, is, is featured in, in some form in the Western media. Uh, and, and this goes well, be, well beyond the United States into Australia, Germany, Britain. I mean, there's a number of countries that have, have, have had individuals either die or at least, or at least uh, you know, get notice and get, and get attention and bring attention to the YPG cause. Dan, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you very much. Dan Lamoth covers national security for The Washington Post. He wrote about the death of Levi Shirley, a Colorado man who died fighting ISIS in Syria. Find a link to his story at CPRnews.org. And we'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The Democratic National Convention closed Thursday, with Hillary Clinton accepting the party's presidential nomination. It was a bittersweet ending for State Representative Joe Salazar of Thornton, who backed her opponent, Senator Bernie Sanders. After Sanders endorsed Clinton earlier this week, Salazar spoke earlier in the week, rather, Salazar spoke to his fellow delegates. You know, I choked up saying to them, hey, look, this is what our general is going to ask us to do, and I'm going to follow him. I don't have the privilege as, number one, a legislator, but number two, a Latino legislator, whose community is in the bullseye of Donald Trump. I don't have the luxury of picking up my marbles and walking away from the table. Well, he's on board with Clinton now. He still wants more specifics from her on issues like trade and ending student loan debt. You know, we still have some wage, racial, social inequality uh, issues that we have to deal with. Uh, And not only that, but she needs to make commitments to Bernie Sanders folks that when she becomes president of the United States, that she's going to be making those solid appointments of Bernie Sanders' minds to help the progressive agenda move forward. And he gets mixed reactions when he asks people who supported Sanders to campaign for Clinton. Some folks are like, all right, all right, I understand what's at stake. And so I'm happy to come along, reluctant but happy nonetheless to engage in this battle. And then I've had some folks who are saying, hey, look, you know, I'm still grieving over this. It's going to take me a little bit of time. And then there are others who are like, there's no way I'm ever going to get there. But I still respect them if that is their decision. It just means that we have to work harder on voter turnout to defeat Trump in November. State Representative Joe Salazar of Thornton was a Bernie Sanders delegate at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump was in Colorado Friday. Hillary Clinton is scheduled to be in Aspen tomorrow in Denver later in the week. And find all our reporting at CPRnews.org. When Fire Captain Charlie Schmidtman fought the Coal Springs Fire outside Nederland, one of the first houses he found incinerated was his own. His first thoughts were for his two dogs, who he thought had died in the blaze, but five hours later he was reunited with his Labrador Clyde, with only a few burns on his snout. Three weeks after the fire, the community continues to support Charlie and his wife, who is also a firefighter, and are determined to find his other dog, Gino. Charlie, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. As the Cold Springs fire began to spread, when did you realize your home and your dogs were in danger? Um, pretty soon into it, actually. We we had known the direction that the fire was heading, and uh, both myself and the chief live pretty close to each other. And we knew that, that our valley was the one that was going to be threatened due to the, the direction that the fire was headed. So did you do anything to prepare before you had to, to race off to fight the blaze? 
Uh, no, not at all. We were actually, I was on a, uh, a car accident when the fire came out. I had just left the car accident, was on my way back to the station, and we got uh, t- toned or dispatched out to the smoker port in the area of, uh, well, where the fire started. Yeah. How do you compose yourself after, after seeing that, after knowing that your, your home is in danger, knowing that your dogs might be inside? Well, you know, it's funny. I called out on the radio trying to see if somebody could go find the dogs or go let the dogs out, but there was there was nobody available. Everybody was, do, you know, doing their job and trying to protect houses and, um, you know, trying to protect each other. Um, we just basically put our nose down and just kept working and, you know, just basically hope for the best. And Clyde turned out to be alive. He did. Yep. It was, uh, I almost crashed the fire truck when I found him. Mm. Um, I was working a spot fire, uh, close to Boulder Canyon and we had unloaded all the water off our fire truck and I was on my way back to the fire station, which was near my house. And I said, oh, let me take one more look down towards the house. And I was driving down on a hill and I looked off in the woods and I saw this little pointy yellow tail and then his head popped up and (laughs) I got so excited. I forgot what I was doing. Uh, but slammed on the brakes and found Clyde. So, so how is he doing now? He's good. He is, um, he's got a little attachment disorder now. He really wants to be with my wife all the time. Um, but he had some neurotic parts of him. He didn't really like tile floors or he didn't like stairs or anything like that. And now he's, uh, he has no problems, no real problems with floors or stairs and, He's seven years old, so he's been fighting that battle for seven years. And it took a fire. Um, it took a fire. Apparently, I think he said, "Yeah, I've walked through at, or I've walked through hot coals now. I got this floor thing." D- does the fact that 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 your dog survived give hope that your other dog, a Saint Bernard, is going to be okay? Yes. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's we're kind of losing a little faith because it's been you know three and a half weeks now. Um, but he. Uh, he was a roamer. He really liked to kind of cruise the neighborhood whenever he could. Um, but, you know, we we haven't found any evidence of him alive or dead, so we're still kind of hopeful. So what does your neighborhood look like? What does the house look like now? Well, we've, uh, we've gotten a lot of volunteer help from both the fire department, um, the Baptist uh, Disaster Relief, um, the, uh, Mormon church, um, and then community members as well. And so even this weekend we had probably 30 to 40 members, you know, members of the community and the churches come up and help us. So we have a lot of trees that are cut down. Most of our foundation has been removed. Um, so now it's just kind of a stumpy black mess. So was there any structure left at all or was it completely incinerated? No, it was the the house was completely gone. We have a small little barn um that's that's currently standing and we lost the house, a shed and the horse and donkey's lean-to. If you're just joining us, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. My guest is Captain Charlie Schmidtman, a Netherland firefighter whose house burned down while he was fighting the Cold Springs Fire. It's been more than three weeks since the fire scorched 528 acres and destroyed eight homes, including yours. How are you going about rebuilding your life and moving forward? You say there are groups that are coming up, volunteer groups to help you clean up. But is it is it smooth sailing or are there a lot of things going on that are preventing uh, you kind of getting your life on track? Um, it is definitely not smooth sailing. Um, we've run into 
a lot of bureaucratic glitches with certain agencies within Boulder County um, that are making it difficult to even get the volunteers to have an easy time. So between paperwork and regulations and rules on how they want things cleaned up and who can do what, um, it's being pretty difficult. So that part is not good. Um, the volunteers just say, whenever you want us, just call us and we'll be there. And that's been truly, truly amazing. Um, but, you know, I think we have a, you know, a, a long path ahead of us. Are these roadblocks uh, pretty common for your neighbors as well? Yes. And I think, you know, I was talking earlier and I was saying that um, I'm pretty lucky because when I'm not a firefighter, I'm also a contractor. And so I have a lot of experience dealing with some of the building agencies and I have access to certain things that a lot of people don't as far as like cleaning up and getting water suppression and things like that. And so I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of folks in my neighborhood that aren't going to have that um, that luxury. And I think it's going to be even harder for them. A fire ban remains for areas of Boulder County, but I've heard you're still working to put out active fires. Well, we have a lot of people who don't think the rules apply to them. And so we have, we're chasing a lot of campfires and the the community is hypersensitive, you know, I think correctly so, but, um, you know, the, the community is pretty sensitive about any smoke that they see. So if somebody gets a, you know, a, a truck full of dirt and it drops on the ground, it creates some smoke. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're getting a lot of phone calls for smoke in the area of a dirt pile. Um, but we're, we're really chasing a lot of uh, transient campfires or campfires that are in areas where you shouldn't be. And so that's really hard on the fire department and the, the community because nobody wants to see any smoke anywhere. And this fire was started by two trespassers on private land, and they're currently awaiting a preliminary hearing. So so you have concerns about people visiting and, and, and lighting fires? Sure, absolutely. Um, I don't think people understand. You know, we have a lot of people that, that come in from very suburban areas where houses are right next to each other, and they don't really understand the magnitude of what a campfire can actually do. And, and at, as we said, this this time law enforcement managed to find the people who lit the fire. How do you feel about that? You know, it's it's kind of a mixed bag. I don't think I don't think these guys did anything intentional. Um, you know, if they were out there trying to actually burn the forest down, that would be one thing. But I, I don't think they understood what they really have done. And so if they go to jail for four, six years, something like that, it doesn't get my dog back. It doesn't get my house or all of the belongings or all of our pictures or, you know, all of the things that we've, you know, we've built and created for the past 20, 30 years. You know, that's all gone. And them going to jail doesn't really do anything for me on that, you know, on that level. And you have a unique perspective because you are a firefighter, but you've also lost your home. Do you believe that people just don't care about fire bans or do they yes. not understand how they work? And if, if the fires that are starting are actually prohibited? Well, I think it's I think it's both. I mean, I think, you know, we had uh, a gentleman call us and say, you know, his this is the day after or two days after the fire saying that his his kids are suffering. They're on vacation. They want to use their wood fired hot tub. And he doesn't understand why he has to be penalized because there's a fire ban. 
And so, you know, there's a little bit of self-entitlement. I think there's a bit of people don't understand what can actually cause a fire or that they truly don't have the resources around them to keep the, you know, the campfire, whatever it is they're doing, suppressed where it's not going to turn into a, you know, let's say a 550-acre fire. So is there education that needs to be done there as well as just the fact that uh, people need to know that these fires are dangerous? Uh, Absolutely. Um, The problem is, how do we educate all the people that are coming into our communities? And I think that's, that's pretty tough. Um, you know, and so there's, you know, we have a couple designated camp areas and yes, while we were fighting the initial fire, we had to go on illegal campfires in these areas. And it would be really nice to see that we have, you know, a camp host in some of these areas. It's not going to really fix the problem. So, you know, we have a lot of people come into our community with a backpack on the RTD bus and they show up at the RTD bus station and they get just slightly out of town and they kind of duck off in the woods. So how do you how do you reach those people? And I think that's one of the one of the big big problems that we're facing. You know, how do we reach them and how do we police them? But but are you worried that you're building your home in a, in a wildfire prone area? I mean, do you think twice about making that decision to rebuild where you are? Um no. I don't because I think it'll eventually it'll come back stronger. Um we have we actually did a pretty good job my wife mostly had done a pretty good job doing wildfire mitigation around our property. And our house was an older property and, um, you know, not made of the best fireproof materials. But I think this time around, we're going to change that. Captain, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. That was Captain Charlie Schmidtman, a Netherland firefighter whose house burned down while he was fighting the Cold Springs fire, talking about the quest to rebuild and to also fight his dog that escaped the fire. Up next, an update from a man trying to walk the 500-mile Colorado Trail using equipment styled from the 1860s. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We first spoke with our next guest, Ben Jenkins, about a month ago. At the time, he was getting ready to take a step 500 miles worth of steps actually back in time on the Colorado Trail. Jenkins is a history buff. His hope was to reenact the trip a merchant might have made in the 1860s, and he would wear clothes and use camping equipment from that era. He told us about his careful research, talked about the clothes he'd made by hand, and only once hedged his bet. Fingers crossed we don't have to stop the trail, but just based on the fact that this has never been done before in this manner, there are a lot of things that we really don't know. We don't actually know what's going to happen out there. Well, Jenkins and his partner Aaron Class have stopped their hike several times, in fact. They've been home in the Denver area more than a week while they do kind of a reset on the trip entirely. Ben, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me back. So after all the planning and the work you put into planning this 500-mile journey, how disappointed are you with what's happened so far? I don't think disappointment is the word. I think maybe surprise is the word. Okay. As living historians, Aaron and I's number one goal is, is to learn. And I think even just the, the 200-plus miles and the two weeks you spent on the trail, I think we learned an immense amount. Um, I left a little bit of my ego and a little bit of my pride on the trail and gained a little humility. But I, I come back being incredibly uh, feeling incredibly accomplished and incredibly excited about what Aaron and I did do. And I think to discredit that or, or to call it dis- – use the word disappointment in relation to that would probably be the wrong word to use. So why did you leave the trail? What, what were some of the issues that you faced? It was a culmination of issues. I think part of it was the lack of immersion due to how busy the trail was uh, – 
doing it 19th century, campfires are incredibly critical and crucial, and there was a fire ban across the entire CT. We heard, yeah. um, physically, the biggest issue we were having was footwear. Uh, the type of footwear we were using that we were actually very excited about from the get-go, as you may remember, um, was not intended for that type of terrain. They were like Oxford shoes almost, leather yeah. Oxford shoes. Yeah, and, yeah. and historically, these guys would have traditionally stuck to the low-lying valleys and plains and followed water and such, such. And and we were definitely not doing that on the Colorado Trail. So how many miles did you actually hike or walk? Uh, slightly over 200 miles. I think Aaron got in about 218, and I got in about 214. And how many days have you been on the trail all told since you started? Um, I think Aaron spent 14 total days, and I spent 12 total days. What is another example of, of a problem that you had to kind of figure out on the trail? Uh, I was very cold. <laughs> um, not being able to have campfires in combination with us not using sleeping bags, us only using wool blankets to try to keep warm. And uh, at, at altitude, a lot of Coloradans may know that it gets very, very cold. So we were dealing with 30-degree nights, 30 to 40-degree nights every single night. And so I think me staying cold even more so than Aaron. Aaron, I don't know how he was staying as warm as he was, but um, definitely that was one of the major issues we dealt with as well. And the trail crosses the mountains from Denver to Durango. The average elevation is 10,000 feet. Uh, the director of the Colorado Trail Foundation, Bill Manning, estimates only about half of the people who plan on making it 500 miles actually succeed. And they're in modern gear, and some of them make it, uh, they actually take it in segments. Uh, but you were planning to do the entire thing. Yeah, maybe that was a little ambitious. So was it ever doable, I guess? That's the question. Um, Actually, no, and for a multitude of reasons. And we didn't really know that until we got on the trail. Um, there was a couple sections we were going to have to to, to miss no matter what due to lack of water. Aaron and I had very limited water capacity. Uh, the ability to carry very little amounts of water meant these sections where there was 15 miles between water was just not a safe bet. Now, could we have done it? Yeah. Would it have been safe? No. So in retrospect and kind of looking at what we've done compared to kind of what we expected, was 500 miles manageable? Probably not in this manner. To, to be safe. It, could it have been done? Yes. To be safe and do it? Probably not. I want to go back to the director of the Trail Foundation, Bill Manning, for a minute. We spoke with him last week, and here's what he had to say about your trip. Anybody who's able to hike a couple hundred miles is uh, is sure got a a reason to be proud. You know, the entire Colorado Trail involves 89,000 vertical feet of climbing. And uh, his couple hundred miles, I think, is probably over uh, 30,000 vertical feet. It takes a heck of an effort to do that. When your equipment was working and you were on a good clip and able to hike, did, did it live up to your expectations? Uh, no, uh, because what had happened was, is one of the main reasons we had gone out there, and if you read our description in our GoFundMe when we were talking about making the film or, or even watched the video, one of the first things we say is we were aiming to create one of the most immersive living history experiences. We weren't just going out there to through-hike. The, the Colorado Trail was just the conduit in which we were attempting this immersion. Um, and Early on, we realized how hard that immersion was actually going to be. The trail was incredibly populated, which is awesome that people are getting out and they're moving and they're doing things like this. Uh, but for two young guys trying to immerse themselves in the 1860s, um, it was incredibly difficult. Shouldn't you have predicted that 
we're in the height of summer. People are going to be hiking. There's things going on. Shouldn't you have been like, oh, that's not very immersive? Yeah, I know, 100%. Um, a lot of, a lot of once we kind of got past Breckenridge, things had kind of filtered out. The hikers themselves had kind of filtered out. The people who were going to drop off had dropped off. The people who had kind of found their pace kind of found their pace. So people weren't as congested. Uh, the issues we ran into then was there was tons of roadwalks. Uh, we were running into bikers constantly. Um, every step of the way, we were kind of looking out and we were seeing roads. And and it, it I was a bit I was a bit more naive than I probably should have been. Again, this is part of my ego kind of leaving that behind. I, I recognize that I should have been a little more conscious of the natural elements, but kind of convincing myself that we were diving into such a remote area. Um, I think my excitement maybe have may have taken over a little bit there. I want to talk more about the history of the Colorado Trail. It's an issue for listeners. Uh, They pointed out after we last spoke was that you focused on the 1860s and white people on the trail when at this time Native Americans were being displaced from their land and there was a lot of conflict. In that era, would you have encountered lots of Native Americans on the trail? Oh, and and, and so many. We probably – if you read any accounts of these guys who were actually doing this, it was was an everyday thing. Um, One thing I I want to note is – and I'll just touch on it just briefly – is that this was an element that Aaron and I were both – very conscious of. Um, The type of people we were portraying in this adventure were people who would have actually tried to connect and tried to make friends and tried to trade with the Native population. Um, We weren't particularly the settlement group of people that were coming into Colorado or the Kansas-Utah or Kansas-Nebraska territory at this time. Um, And it is something that I think in the film we're, we're proactively trying to touch on because it was an element that both him and I were we're deeply saddened about that no matter how hard we try, the Native element that we would have loved to have encountered just just was not there and will probably never be there. And you raised $7,000 for this trip with a GoFundMe account. Are these people going to get their money back? Well, that's the misconception. The money is not for the trip. Uh, the money is for the film. And the film is still in production. There's actually a camera crew in another room here at the studios today. Um, the film is still being made. The film is actually kind of taken on its own very organic narrative uh, based on the issues. Ben, thanks for joining us. Ben Jenkins is Ben Jenkins is from Erie, Colorado, north of Denver. He and his friend Aaron Class are trying to walk the 500-mile Colorado Trail as hikers in the 1860s would have. And up next, we'll meet three Coloradans swimming in the 2016 Paralympic Games in Rio. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The most decorated Olympian of all time has a body that seems made for swimming. Michael Phelps' size 14 feet are like flippers, and his long torso and arms have probably won the swimmer at least one of his 18 gold medals. The swimmers we'll talk with next don't have those advantages. Raquel Bro was born without feet. Sophia Herzog and Riley Boyd are about four feet tall. The trio are representing the U.S. at the pool at the Paralympic Games this summer. We spoke with them as we cover Coloradans competing in Rio. I started by asking how they each got into swimming. Riley Boyd, who was on the phone, went first. So I live in a family of very, very athletic people, and I'm the only one that's not really coordinated on land. And so my parents did the typical thing, like, let's put her in youth group soccer, and that just didn't go well. I played with chalk lines. I got stuck in a net. It just wasn't oh. fun. And so my family's baseball players and softball players are so like, all right, let's try T-ball. T-ball didn't end up well either. I got hit by the balls in the bat a lot. And my mom finally said, let's just throw her in the water and hope she doesn't drown. And it kind of just started out. And I found my love for swimming through that and got to go to my first Paralympic trial, which was my first Paralympic anything when I was 12 years old. Raquel. 
you know, when I was, like, really young, I always loved to play in the bathtub instead of going to the park. I think probably it was easier to just splash around instead of, you know, running around on my prosthetic legs in the park. So, I mean, my parents kind of ran with that and were like, oh, let's stick her in swim lessons. Sophia? So I got into swimming um, through DAAA, which is Dwarf Athletic Association of America. And now I live at the Olympic Training Center and uh, in preparations for Rio 2016. You think you have to be more mentally tough in this sport of swimming because you're physically impaired. I think mental toughness comes in all shapes and form, especially just in the level that we're competing at. I think it's different for us because, like Sophie and I really experienced this, when we swim with able-bodied swimmers, there's a very big difference, and it's quite noticeable to see. And so that kind of mental toughness has to come into play because when you're a kid and swimming against kids your own age and they're lapping you almost 10 times a practice, it starts to get a little hard. But I'd say now that we're all at this level, the same type of mental toughness applies in every region. Sophie, what do you think? I definitely agree with Riley. With practices, we both get lapped multiple times and we're both in the water a lot longer to finish the set than it usually takes an average-sized person. But swimming is definitely an individual sport. You're in the lane by yourself. You you can't talk to anyone underwater. So you do need that mental toughness. And how both Bacall and Riley had practice at 6 in the morning. You know, that's pretty early to get up and get into some water. (laughs) Definitely takes mental toughness to do that, especially outdoor (laughs) pools. Raquel, do you feel most at home when you're swimming? Oh, for sure. Definitely when I was younger, like, you know, toddler, it was just easier. And so I think growing up, the pool has always been just like a safe spot where, like, I can take my legs off. And it's, like, definitely freeing because I don't have to worry about, you know, my prosthetic legs. And it just, the fact that I don't have feet doesn't ever really come into play there. And you also compete on the Stanford swim team. And when your teammates told the student newspaper their quote, one thing about Burkell is that you forget there's anything different about her. You don't know she's disabled. Like, she doesn't act like that at all. What was your reaction to that? Uh, to me, that was really, really flattering. I, I don't know, I like that people, you know, forget that I'm disabled and just, you know, forget that there's any difference. Because in my head, I'm not different from anyone. And Sophia and Riley, you compete against each other. Uh, in a category for, quote, little people. And Raquel, you will compete against other amputees without your prosthetics. And this is your second Paralympics. Raquel, what are your goals in Rio? Uh, Getting a medal, always a good goal for USA. But I think beyond that, um, this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And I just want to, you know, take it all in and have fun more than anything. (laughs) Sophia? Same. Uh, Definitely coming home. With a medal is the ultimate goal, but just soaking up every moment and enjoying all the teammates and the culture down there. So I grew up with an uncle who went to Barcelona, and so I always heard the stories of, you know, what the podium felt like and what it felt like, just the atmosphere in the village and all that, and I really just want to have one of those experiences that I can pass on. But again, medal is the ultimate goal. Raquel, you made a video for the John Lynch Foundation in 2011, and Lynch is a former Denver Bronco, and you won a scholarship from his foundation. I want people to know that I'm just another normal teenage girl. I decided to make my legs bright colors because I want people to know that I'm a happy, fun person who's not trying to hide her disability. You were 14 then. Do you still have bright-colored prosthetics? So I no longer have bright colors, but um, it's still... 
I have carbon fiber, and they're still kind of uh, robot-looking, as little kids like to say. Um, <laughs> I decided against the bright colors because I had some skirts that my legs didn't... They kind of clashed with. <laughs> <laughs> your legs um, clashed with your skirt. Okay. <laughs> I, you can't go to prom with, like, five different prints. <laughs> um, so I still have mechanical-looking legs. They don't look like real legs, but they're not crazy colors anymore. <laughs> And, and they're how still do, pretty cool looking. They're still pretty cool looking. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thanks. They're super cool looking. So one time I was walking down the hallway and this little kid stopped me and he was like, oh, my gosh, do your legs shoot lasers? <laughs> I mean, they, they don't shoot lasers, right? No, I wish. <laughs> uh, Brickell, your spirit about growing up as a double amputee really comes through in your Twitter feed. Your handle is my feet don't stink. So my feet don't sing is actually a funny story. The man who makes my legs, my prosthetist, we were joking around one time and I was saying that I, well, I was talking to him about this foundation that I wanted to start um, to help other young girls with disabilities to kind of understand, you know, that they can do whatever they want and that the people that are telling them no are, are wrong, basically. Um, <laughs> and so we were talking about potential names and just kind of as a joke, he was like, you know, you should call it my feet don't stink because, I mean, your feet don't stink. And I just kind of took that and ran with it. <laughs> and Sophie, what about what about you? you? You also have this sense of humor that's evident on social media. Uh, I saw an Instagram post with a photo of you and a friend where you wrote, quote, not much has changed since preschool except you've gotten bigger and I haven't. Yeah. You just kind of have to take it lightly. I mean, I try and smile every day about dwarfism because it's gotten me this far. If I didn't have dwarfism, I probably wouldn't be going to the Rio 2016 Paralympic Games. With that picture, he's about 6'3", and he was my best friend through high school, and he always, um, he was my bodyguard. He always stood up for me, and now I'm like his bodyguard. (laughs) You protect him. Yeah, I protect him now. And, Brickell, I understand you're inspired by Missy Franklin, the Olympic gold medal swimmer who grew up outside Denver. What was it like to meet her for the first time a couple years ago? Oh, my gosh. Missy is just, oh, she's so sweet and she's so friendly. And it was just so fun, you know, to meet another USA teammate and kind of to see how excited she is and how happy she is about everything. And I'm like, I just I like that. I want to be, you know, that positive about everything. And Riley, do you have someone that inspires you uh, as well? When you walk into any Paralympic meet, you're automatically inspired because the stories from everyone, no one's had the same challenges and no one's overcome the same things that you have. So it gives you perspective on life. Like we have teammates that are veterans and we have teammates that have battled cancer or were adopted and were adopted from, you know, a country where their disability is just not accepted. And so just, Stuff like that, it becomes super inspiring because they're overcoming these things or they've had these challenges that maybe don't have to do with their disability. And just being in the presence of other athletes that have overcome things like you have, I don't mean the same way, but they've overcome hurdles. It's inspiring. Now, it's pretty unusual to have three Colorado swimmers on the Paralympic team or an Olympic team for that matter. Um, Do you think it's a coincidence or do you think Colorado is becoming a swimmer state, Sophie? Uh, well, we do have the Olympic Training Center here with the pool, so it is a hot spot for that. And then probably the high altitude is definitely helping us out, just building the Your cardio capacity. Yeah. yeah. So when we go down to Rio, hopefully, it's a lot easier for us to breathe. 
And what about, let's say, at the, the high school level or the middle school level? Do you see more people getting into sports and, and more in terms of swimming and, and really uh, kind of making this a place that people want to? Uh... Yeah. Colorado is definitely an athletic state. Um, I also do think Missy Franklin, being from Colorado, helped a lot of little girls get into it. Now, people will be looking up to you as well. I mean, have you thought about that? Or, 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 or what does that feel like to have people look up to you and be like, yeah, I want to be like you? Riley and I are in LPA, which is Little People of America, and we have a couple up-and-coming dwarf swimmers that were at the Paralympic trials. Um, So it is really good to see that hopefully her and I can help inspire the younger coming up and getting into elite-level sport. Um, It doesn't even have to be swimming, track and field, basketball, whatever. Yeah, we grew up around Miranda Ewell, Casey Johnson um, in LPA, and so they were our superheroes when we were a kid like we wanted to be Paralympians and that was huge for us and so if we can do that for other little girls and even um, little boys if we can inspire them to reach for their dreams I'm 100% I guess grateful for that. You know for me all growing up I had this scrapbook that my mom had made of these other double amputees that were doing amazing things and so you know I looked at that like all the time and so for me my proudest moments now are the fact that I can, you know, influence other young girls in the same way that I was. And I mean, the happiest parts of these meets for me are talking to the young girls that are just getting into this and showing them how much they really can do. I think Brickell is really good at that in that sense, because um, Sophie Brickell and I were actually in Charlotte six weeks before trials even happened doing a, um, a USA swimming event. And we have little kids on the side that also had disabilities. And there was this one little girl that Raquel walked over to, and this little girl was in awe of her. And she was able to relate to this um, young woman and just inspire her to come back and to actually get into swimming or get into any sport she wanted. And I honestly think that we're going to see that girl on the pool deck again. Well, thanks to the three of you for being here. And congratulations and and best of luck. Thank you. Thank you so much. Riley Boyd of Fort Collins, Sophia Herzog of Fair Play, and Raquel Bro of Castle Pines will be part of the U.S. Paralympic team later this summer. We spoke with them as we cover Coloradans competing in Rio. Finally today, the Underground Music Showcase was this weekend. The annual summer festival in Denver brings a slew of eclectic, experimental, and under-the-radar music acts. One of the local highlights was Denver singer-songwriter Holly Lovell. Her songs can turn from hazy folk to stormy rock at a moment's notice, all driven by Lovell's confident and wavering voice. And we'll leave you with Get It Right by Holly Lovell. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. It doesn't take much for me to be starting.